I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to our the text for the sermon this Lord's Day as we continue our series through the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 7, verses 1 through 8. Once again, Daniel chapter 7, verses 1 through 8. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head upon his bed. Then he wrote the dream and told the sum of the matters. Daniel spake and said, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of the heavens strove upon the great sea. And four great beasts came up from the sea, diverse one from another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I beheld till the wings thereof were plucked, and it was lifted up from the earth and made stand upon the feet as a man, and a man's heart was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second like to a bear, and it raised up itself on one side, and it had three ribs in the mouth of it between the teeth of it. And they said thus unto it, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I beheld, and lo, another like a leopard, which had upon the back of it four wings of a fowl, The beast had also four heads, and dominion was given to it. And this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, and strong exceedingly. And it had great iron teeth. It devoured and brake in pieces, and stamped the residue with the feet of it. And it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another little horn, before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of man, and a mouth speaking great things. Government can be a great blessing uh, to a nation uh, when it is God's servant and applies the justice that's found in the scripture to its people. Or government can be a great judgment to a nation when it is God's enemy and applies the injustice found in the evil and wicked hearts of men to its people. Government can be a servant to God's people, or government can be a beast to God's people. We pray not for a great reset, 
that will oppress and tyrannize those that would be faithful to King Jesus and to his holy commandments. Rather, we pray for a great reformation that will acknowledge Jesus Christ as King of kings and as Lord of lords over all the nations and will renew faithful covenants, national covenants with the Lord Jesus and establish righteous laws agreeable to God's law. That's what we pray for. This great reformation will come. Christ has promised it. This great reformation, however, will only come through the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ in first turning the hearts of the people within the nation from their sin unto uh, Christ's forgiveness and righteousness. Dear ones, this does not happen at the, at the end of a gun. But through the mighty work of salvation wrought by the power of God's Holy Spirit in the lives of people, the people must first be converted to Jesus Christ. And then they must appoint godly leaders over them to rule over them who will then enact righteous and holy laws and covenants within that nation. You see, to impose a Taliban Christianity from the top down upon an unconverted nation is to prepare for a bloodbath and a reign of terror rather than to prepare for the glorious and peaceful reign of Jesus Christ over the nations. Romans chapter 11, verses 25 through 27, promises that the fullness, all of the nations, and even Israel, will come to acknowledge and to submit to the Lord Jesus Christ. That will happen but it will happen as the Lord Jesus humbles the nations, as they repent of their sin, as they turn in faith to Jesus Christ. And he will accomplish that. And then we will see the reformation within the nations. Daniel's dream here in Daniel 7, which we have just read concerning has to do with four bestial kingdoms, which are really in parallel to the kingdoms that we already have considered in Daniel chapter 2. You remember this large image that Nebuchadnezzar had this dream concerning and different parts of the image, four different parts of the image represented uh, by different metals gold, silver, brass, and iron, different empires that would rule uh, successively, one after the other, until the reign of Jesus Christ over all nations in a glorious manner and way. 
bringing and subduing all nations to himself. Well, we see in the chapter before us uh, the same kingdoms, four kingdoms, but here represented by beasts rather than by metals. And this will form uh, basically the outline for the next two sermons. I'm only going to be able to, in this sermon to get through the first two points of the outline. Uh, next Lord's Day, God willing, we will complete uh, the last two points of this outline. But these are the four points of the outline. First of all, <clears throat> in this vision given by God to Daniel, we see the lion. We see the lion in Daniel 7, verses 1 through 4, is parallel to the head of gold back in Daniel 2.32, which is Babylon. Secondly, we see the bear in Daniel 7.5, which is parallel to the chest and arms of silver back in Daniel 2.32 which is the empire of Medo-Persia. Thirdly, we see the leopard in Daniel 7, 6, which is parallel to the belly and thighs of brass back in Daniel 2, 32, which is the empire of Greece. And fourthly, we see this terrible beast that cannot even be given a name. Uh, no animal uh, can... Uh, be used or is used uh, to even describe this fourth beast. It's just called uh, a dreadful and a terrible beast in Daniel 7, verses 7 through 8, which is parallel to the legs of iron in Daniel 2, 33, uh, which is the empire of Rome. So let us begin uh, in our text this Lord's Day by looking at that first beast, the lion. The lion in verses 1 through 4, which as has been noted is parallel to the head of gold in Daniel 2.32, which is Babylon. Look with me once again, verses 1 through 4 of Daniel 7. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head upon his bed. Then he wrote the dream and told the sum of the matters. Daniel spake and said, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of the heaven strove upon the great sea. And four great beasts came up from the sea, diverse one from another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I beheld till the wings thereof were plucked, and it was lifted up from the earth and made stand upon the feet as a man, and a man's heart was given to it. And that is parallel to Daniel 2.32 in Nebuchadnezzar's dream of that, that large, enormous image. This image's head was of fine gold, which again, if you remember back to that sermon, represents the empire of Babylon. 
So as we begin Daniel chapter 7 here, just kind of a general introduction uh, to this chapter. We move from uh, the historical section of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 1 through chapter 6, to what is explicitly the prophetic section of Daniel in Daniel chapter 7 through chapter 12. There were dreams which were interpreted in the first section but he, which pointed to the future, that's true, but this last section basically doesn't have any historical um, accounts like the first section did. The first section as to how Daniel arrived, and you remember how they refused the king's food and, uh, in order to be faithful to God. You remember how the image was set up by Nebuchadnezzar and uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to fall down before the image and cast into the fiery furnace. Uh, you remember how uh, the account of uh, Daniel being cast into the lion's den, which we just finished uh, in the previous sermon. So there are historical accounts in the first section, but the remainder of, this, of the book of Daniel uh, is of prophetic uh, references. It's dealing with prophecies that are yet uh, to come. <clears throat> Another difference is uh, between the first section and the second section of Daniel, we move from the dreams God gave to Nebuchadnezzar. Remember two dreams, uh, that dream in Daniel 2 of the great image that we're talking about, and a stone was cut out from the, from the mountain and rolled and, and crushed the image as it uh, hit the image at its feet and that image toppled and fell. Uh, the dream uh, of the great tree that was given in Daniel 4 by the Lord to Nebuchadnezzar and was interpreted by Daniel. That tree represented Nebuchadnezzar who was to be cut down to size, as it were, because of his pride and, uh, and uh, made to wander about for seven years, his mind being uh, taken from him, wandering around uh, like, uh, uh, like uh, a cow in the field, lowing, uh, the Word of God teaches. And we move from that to the second section where there are four uh, prophetic revelations that God gave not to the kings, but gave directly to Daniel. In Daniel 7, the first revelation, which we're considering today, and next Lord's Day. Uh, Daniel uh, chapter 8 is a second revelation that God gives to Daniel. Daniel 9 is the third revelation that God gives to Daniel. And Daniel chapters 10 through 12 is one revelation that covers those three chapters, one revelation from God. So four revelations. Another distinction between the first section and the second section. We move from the prophetic and historic description of the four great empires of the ancient world, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, 
uh, which are pictured at, in, in this glorious, enormous uh, image uh, composed of various metals. And we move from that, the glory of this image, brilliant. We move from that to the prophetic and historic description of the same four great empires of the ancient world pictured now, not as a glorious image, composed of all of these precious metals. And now we move to the description of these four great empires as cruel beasts, beasts that oppress and crush all the nations around them in Daniel chapter 7. Daniel 7, like Daniel 2, gives uh, in prophetic symbols a panoramic view of all of history from the time of Babylon till the time that the Lord Jesus Christ from heaven subdues all the nations unto himself. So it's a panoramic view of world history, basically, in Daniel chapter 7. Another distinction, Daniel 2 portrays these ancient empires from an earthly perspective of their human pride and, and glory in exalting themselves above all nations. Whereas in Daniel 7, we see these nations and these empires portrayed these same that are mentioned in Daniel 2, these same four empires portrayed from the heavenly perspective, not from earthly perspective of the glory of these kingdoms in Daniel 2, but from the perspective of heaven. And from heaven's perspective, they have a bestial cruelty and tyranny as they crush and enslave the nations all around them. As we reflect upon what has just been said, let us again think upon and consider that every nation and every person, for that matter, is viewed from the same two perspectives. We may have a perspective of ourselves or others may have a perspective of us that's an earthly perspective and that perspective may be very rosy. We may view ourselves uh, in such a way, uh, we're really good people, and so much of the world is like that. The world, uh, basically, you ask, are you a good person? And, and most people say, yeah, I'm a good person. And uh, again, uh, we need not only to have that perspective, that, and we have that perspective, but we also, especially, there is a heavenly perspective of us. There's a heavenly perspective of us as a nation, and there's a heavenly perspective of us as individuals. And that perspective from heaven is weighed against what God says not what man simply considers to be the case. 
from what God says. God says, for example, in, in Proverbs 14.34, righteousness exalteth a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. That's not the view of, of, uh, uh, of the earth. Uh, the earthly perspective is that uh, we don't have to follow God's law. We don't have to follow what God tells us to do as a nation or as individuals. We are our own masters. We are our own lords. We decide that. We don't have to submit to the Lord God Almighty. But heaven's perspective is quite different. And it's heaven's perspective that is always right. It's God's perspective that is always faithful and is always true. For example, when God says through the Apostle Paul, for all have sinned, not some, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That means that we're all in the same boat. We're all in need as individuals and as a nation. We need, therefore, a savior because we're all sinners. And as a nation, we have turned against the king of kings to go our own way and to think that we are our own Lord and master. Whereas the Bible teaches, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved, other than the name of Jesus Christ. There is no salvation. There is no help for us as a nation, nor as individuals apart from Jesus Christ. He is the only one who can rescue, who can save us from the judgment that a righteous judge will bring upon the nations and upon us if we do not turn to him in faith and trust him as Savior and Lord. This divine vision given by God to Daniel is dated here in Daniel 7.1, as dated in the first year of King Belshazzar of Babylon, which was approximately the year 555 BC. About 50 years after Daniel was taken captive uh, from Jerusalem uh, to Babylon. Actually, <clears throat> this vision given to Daniel in Daniel 7 is chronologically before Daniel chapter 5. You remember Daniel chapter 5 talks about the last day of King Belshazzar's life. He was killed uh, by the Medes and the Persians that evening, that same night it says. And this is in his first year. So Again, the chapters in Daniel don't necessarily go chronologically. We have to be able to fit them into their, uh, uh, the proper timeline. And so this actually precedes chapter 5. Daniel chapter 7 uh, gives us the content of this divine vision and revelation in symbols. 
talking about beasts and and uh, these various creatures that have wings and, and are performing various gestures and actions and saying various things. And so, again, we have to interpret these symbols. Uh, they communicate something very true and something very real. A symbol doesn't mean it's any less real than if God actually said it in language uh, by way of the interpretation of what the symbol means. Uh, it's still actual history that is being spoken of here in symbols. We see in Daniel 7, 2, uh, that uh, Daniel sees the four winds <clears throat> blowing from the east, from the west, from the north, and from the south, and converging, all of these winds converging upon the great sea in verse 2, uh, which would be as uh, wherever it's mentioned in the Old Testament when it mentions the great sea, it refers to the Mediterranean Sea, to which all four empires, their empires extended to the Mediterranean Sea. Some of them surrounded the Mediterranean Sea, but they all extended at least to the Mediterranean Sea. <clears throat> and so this uh, initial aspect of this vision this the four winds blowing upon the great sea is a picture is a symbolic picture of a mighty tempest upon the sea of nations and violent conflicts between the nations for example in Isaiah 17:12 we read, Woe to the multitude of many people which make a noise like the noise of the seas and to the rushing of nations that make a rushing like the rushing of mighty waters. And so here we see uh, uh, in the four winds converging there upon the great sea and stirring up the sea. This is a, a picture of the nations in conflict one with another violent conflicts. And out of these bloody conflicts and out of these bloody wars arise four empires symbolized as overpowering beasts. In verse 3, and the four beasts and the four great beasts came up from the sea, diverse one from another. And so the first beast is the one that we are considering at this time. The first beast is signified by a lion with eagle's wings. As we've already noted, this is the Babylonian Empire. Uh, in fact, Babylon is described in the prophecy of Jer Jeremiah as being a lion and as having wings as uh, uh, metaphorically, figuratively. For example, we read from Daniel, I'm sorry, Jeremiah chapter 4, verses 7 and 13, the lion has come up from his thicket and the destroyer of the Gentiles is on his way. He has gone forth from his place to make the land desolate and the city shall be laid waste without an inhabitant. Behold, he shall come up as clouds and his chariots shall be as a whirlwind. His horses are swifter than the eagles. 
Woe unto us, for we are spoiled. This is speaking again of Babylon coming upon Israel and upon the nations, the surrounding nations as well, like a lion as having wings. This actually was a, a very popular symbol, uh, a lion with wings. It was a popular symbol of Babylon found in the excavations of ancient Babylon. Babylon was here pictured as a lion, as having the strength of a lion, the king of beasts. And like an eagle, the king of the birds, like an eagle as to swiftness in conquering all of the surrounding nations at that time, especially under King Nebuchadnezzar. Babylon ruled supreme over the nations from 605, 605 to 539 BC. Daniel then saw in the vision something very strange. He saw that the wings of the lion were plucked from the lion, signifying that the days of rapid conquest by Babylon uh, had come to an end and would come to an end because they had not at the time that Daniel is here um, giving this, given this revelation, they had not finally terminated, but they actually, the wings were actually plucked uh, even before the final days of Babylon. I think that this is an interesting image of the wings being plucked. What does this refer to? Uh, let me suggest that, uh, that the wings were plucked from the lion so that the lion uh, had no longer a bestial thirst for the blood of other kingdoms when that judgment fell upon Nebuchadnezzar. When the judgment fell upon Nebuchadnezzar for seven years that he wandered about like a cow, his mind being taken from him, eating grass from the field, not on his throne, being removed from his throne, conquests came to an end at that point in the history of Babylon. When he was restored to his right mind, he was like, again, uh, the lion whose wings were plucked from him and was made to stand on his feet and given the heart of a man. It would appear from that point on his desire for greater conquests in advancing his power was changed. Not necessarily that he was converted and became a believer alone in the one true living God. He continued to be would appear a practicing pagan and worshiping many various gods, though he gave a particular honor to the one true living God at that time. Uh, but 
His heart was changed from becoming bloodthirsty and seeking as a lion to crush other nations. And he became uh, more passive in regard to that whole lion image at that particular point. We see here that God even humbles uh, pagan and heathen kings that glory in their own pride and, and act as hungry lions, uh, eating up people, tyrannizing people. They are post, supposed to be serving on behalf of the one true living God. God is able to humble them as he did Nebuchadnezzar. And dear, dear ones, more personally, we need to understand when we will not learn by the word of God that is taught to us, that is preached to us, that we read, when we will not learn from God to be humble before him and humble before one another, God also takes us through trials that humble us and that show us our pride in thinking ourselves better, thinking ourselves better, thinking ourselves wiser, smarter, and holier than others. He knows in all of our lives how to pluck off our wings to slow us down that we might take inventory of our own arrogance and our own pride, each one of us. A challenge to us all, let us learn the easy way by his word rather than having to learn the hard way by his rod. Either way, whether God teaches us by his word or he teaches us by his rod, it's always administered in love to his children. Not because he hates us as his children, even if he uses the more severe method to humble us. It's because he loves us. He cares for us. And he would not allow us to continue in that pride any more than he allowed Nebuchadnezzar, a heathen king, to continue to glory in his pride. But I want to also point out to you, God humbled Nebuchadnezzar, God humbles us, but Jesus, on the other hand, humbled himself. Jesus humbled himself. He voluntarily humbled himself and taking upon himself humanity. Being the everlasting God, he humbled himself in becoming a man so as to suffer the reproach, the rejection, the false accusations, the stripes, the thorns, the nails, and the cross. 
for the sins of all those whom he loved from all eternity. There's probably not a, a more clear biblical passage to illustrate that very humiliation, willing humiliation on the part of the Lord Jesus in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 11. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. He was equal with God. He didn't have to steal anything or rob God of anything. He was God. He thought it not robbery to be equal with God. But notice but made himself of no reputation. He came born in a lowly manger, a stable amongst animals. Wasn't born in a palace as being the king of kings. Born to simple parents, a carpenter, a lowly maiden. Made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. He humbled himself. Why? He humbled himself that you who trust in him might be saved for all eternity. That's what his humiliation has brought about. And we're not only to look back to his humiliation as, what, as far as what it accomplished in our salvation, but we are to look back to his humiliation and to walk likewise. Not being forced to be humbled, but willingly humbling ourselves before God and before one another. That's truly learning from the word and not from the rod. Our second main point is the bear. The bear in Daniel 7, 5, where it says, And behold, another beast, a second, like to a bear, and it raised up itself on one side, and it had three ribs in the mouth of it, between the teeth of it. And they said thus unto it, Arise, devour much flesh. This bear in Daniel 7, 5 is parallel to the chest and arms of silver in the image of that dream given to 
King Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel chapter 2, verse 32. This was the second empire that followed the head of gold. You remember verse 32, the image's head was of fine gold, his breast and arms of silver. And so the second empire is here, the second beast, Medo-Persia, the empire of Medo-Persia. So this is the second empire that ascends from the bloody conflicts uh, within the sea of nations. It's signified by the crushing power of a mighty bear that stalks its prey and overpowers it, its prey with its huge body and its mighty claws. The bear, again, signifies the Medo-Persian Empire. The Medo-Persian uh, Medo Empire far exceeded the boundaries of the Babylonian uh, Empire. In reaching to India, in Asia, to the Middle East, to northern Africa, and then on the other side of the Mediterranean Sea, all of the territory uh, that encompasses Asia Minor or modern Turkey today. It pounced like a bear upon all nations and ruled as supreme in the world from 539 to 336. BC. The Greek historian uh, Herodotus records that Persia had over two and a half million soldiers. That would dwarf the army that the United States has. Two and a half million. It would dwarf any army, basically, within any nation uh, presently. Two and a half million soldiers. Uh, it had 1,200 warships, 3,000 lesser fighting ships and supply ships. Uh, by its vast fleet and its mighty army, it was able to conquer a great portion of the nations surrounding the Mediterranean Sea. It was indeed the military machine. It was the bear at that time that ruled the world. Daniel observed the following characteristics about this bear-like empire. As it lay on its side, one side was raised higher than the other side, which signified a bear having two sides, that the, the side that was raised higher uh, was the greater of the two kingdoms between Media and Persia. Persia was the, the greater of the two kingdoms and would become, again, the basically, it would be known subsequently as the Persian Empire because that, that particular uh, Persian element was uh, supreme within the Medo-Persian Empire 
at the, at the outset. Likewise, in the next chapter, we're going to see another revelation in chapter 8, Daniel 8, verse 3, and it's going to depict this uh, battle between uh, a ram and a he-goat. And uh, this ram, it uh, says, has two horns in verse 3. This ram has two horns in verse 3. And the two horns were high, but notice, but one was higher than the other, and the higher came up last. And this again depicts uh, the Medo-Persian Empire warring against uh, Alexander the Great, uh, the he-goat, that is the uh, horn in the middle of the head of the he-goat that overcomes the ram with the, the difference in two horns. And so we'll be considering that in, uh, in a future sermon. But here, again, uh, the being raised up on one side is simply pointing out the superiority of Persia within the Medo-Persian Empire. We also see, by way of uh, characteristics here, that the bear had three ribs in its mouth, and between its mighty teeth were the prey that it had overcome, <clears throat> signifying those three ribs, signifying recent nations that it had conquered, Babylon, Egypt, and Lydia that had fallen, mighty kingdoms that had fallen under the, the bear of Medo-Persia. Then we hear, see in verse 5, it says, And they said thus unto it, Arise, devour much flesh. And so we ask, who is they? It says, they said to this bear that's basically already overwhelmed and overcome these three kingdoms of Babylon, Egypt, and Lydia, there's a voice that says, uh, or voices that say, um, to rise up, devour much flesh. So beyond even those three kingdoms, it was to go forth and to conquer other nations as well. And I would submit uh, that uh, the voices that were heard here are probably the same voices of the angelic watchers that are mentioned in Daniel 4.23 that said in that particular dream, cut down, cut down the tree. And in this particular case, these angelic watchers, these, these angelic beings that God uses uh, who accomplish his will within the world and in the earth amongst nations, that uh, they are the ones who say to the bear, Go forth, devour much flesh. Go forth beyond the conquering of these three kingdoms and devour and conquer many other nations. When Daniel received uh, this vision in about 555 BC, <clears throat> it was Babylon 
that was ruling. It was the first year of Belshazzar. Uh, it was Babylon that was the supreme kingdom and nation at that time uh, of the beasts, uh, the lion with the, two, with the two wings. That was the kingdom that was ruling at that time. <clears throat> but he, here we see that God is giving uh, unto Daniel revelation of a kingdom that was going to appear a number of years later in, in the reign of King Belshazzar in the year 539. 555 is when the vision is given. 539 is when the bear appears at the gates of Babylon. And when the bear overwhelms Babylon, becomes one of those ribs in the, in the mouth, among the teeth of the bear in 539. And so this basically is, again, showing and demonstrating that it's God who calls forth nations. He causes nations to rise up in power, and he puts down nations. It's not due to mere military might. It's not due to mere wisdom, uh, human wisdom on the part of leaders. Many times, again, God's going to use those things as means, but it's God who has decreed and ordains all that happens amongst the nations. And we need to understand that the one who calls forth the nations uh, from that great sea where the four winds are converging, the one who calls forth those nations is greater than the nations themselves. That's what King Nebuchadnezzar came to realize, that God is greater than him, and that God's kingdom is greater than his kingdom. In Daniel chapter 4, verses 34 through 35. This is after Nebuchadnezzar had wandered for seven years, Years, his mind having been taken from him in the fields, uh, acting, thinking and acting as, as an animal, as a cow, feeding upon grass. And when God brought back to Nebuchadnezzar his mind, we read, this is his testimony. Daniel 4, verses 34 through 35. And at the end, of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes unto heaven, and mine understanding returned unto me. And I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him that liveth forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation, whereas Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom is going, he knew his kingdom was eventually going to come to an end. Uh, he was going to die, but he's, he's affirming that God's dominion, God's power, God's kingdom has no end. Uh, God reigns from eternity to, to eternity. Verse 35, And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing, and he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand. Or say unto him, What doest thou? 
Prophet Jeremiah likewise affirms in Jeremiah 10:7, Who would not fear thee, O king of nations? For to thee doth it appertain. For as much as among all the wise men of the nations and in all their kingdoms there is none like unto thee. And dear ones, that's why we need not panic. That's why we need not fear. That's why we need not be cast into hopelessness and despair, regardless of what we see going all, on, all around us. The wickedness, the corruption, the tyranny, we need not panic or fear. Because it's our God, the God and King of the nations. Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords that reigns over all these nations, who controls the lion with the two wings, that controls the bear, that controls the, the leopard of Greece, that controls uh, that uh, indescribable and fearful beast of Rome. It's his kingdom that rules, not theirs. That's why we need not fear, and that's what we learn as we meditate upon and reflect upon the words that we have considered this Lord's Day. Just as our God raised up and put down nations at that time, so he likewise does even now. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. The age and the time do not lessen his power in the least. His control, his dominion in the least. His power cannot be increased. His power cannot be decreased. He is and has always been the almighty God who controls all. He created all. He controls all. And so all that happens, happens for a reason, for a purpose. We may not fully understand what his purpose is, but we know that he reigns, he's supreme, and that he is doing so for his glory and for the good of us, his people. That's why we can have hope. That's why we need not despair, because our hope is in the living God, the one true living God. It's not in the nations. Our hope is not in the governments. Our hope is not in political parties. Our hope is not in leaders, political leaders. Our hope is in the living God. And one application as we, as we close this Lord's Day. These empires that we are reading about were indeed mighty at the time that they ruled. They were supreme. They were dominant. They crushed all the nations that were around them. They were wealthy. They were powerful. And it probably seemed to them that their power would go on and on and on. But it did end. In each of the cases of these four kingdoms, their power ended. It ended 
by God's own holy purpose and plan. And so every nation that seems to be at its zenith, no matter how powerful nations may be, whether it be our nation or another nation that seems to be so powerful, that nation, again, will not last and rule in that power forever any more than Babylon did, any more than Medo-Persia did, any more than Greece did, any more than Rome did. But if that's true of every nation, and it is, let us not miss the obvious, that it's true also of every one of us. Regardless of what achievements, riches, power, property, regardless of fame and popularity, regardless of success that we gain in this life, we will not be able to hold on to it any more than those kingdoms and those nations from the past were able to hold on to their power, hold on to their glory we will not be able to hold on to ours individually. Our lives upon earth will fade away, as did Babylon and as did Medo-Persia fade away. Even if we live to be a hundred years, which is probably very unlikely uh, for nearly all of us, but even if we live to be a hundred years, It's a drop in the bucket. At over 70 years now, I look back and I say, where did my life go as far as the years? What happened to all of those years? They're gone. And however much longer the Lord grants me, I'll be looking back and saying the same thing. It's a drop in the bucket just like the empires of Babylonia and Persia. Where are they now? They're gone. They're gone, and one day so will we all be gone. Whether you're young, whether you're middle-aged, whether you're older, one day the glory will pass away. And if our life, dear ones, is not built upon Jesus Christ, who transcends death, who has gone before us to prepare a place for us in the glories of heaven with him. We have nothing. We have nothing in this life. And worse, we have nothing but judgment awaiting us in the life to come. Jesus said in Luke 12, 15, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. He warns us, take heed. If you think that your life consists in the things that you have here upon earth, not that we don't thank God for what he has given to us, but if you think that's what your life consists of, you're going to lose your life. You're going to lose 
all hope if that's what you place your hope in. And so the Lord tells us what to build our life upon. Not upon shifting or shifting sand, but to build our life upon Jesus Christ, the rock. So that when the storms of this life, the trials of this life come against us, the winds, the rain, the storm blows, our foundation will remain secure. Jesus Christ. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever because he died for those who trust in him. And he was raised from the dead. He has granted to us likewise that when we die, we will not leave behind our life. We will be ascending to the glory of heaven, to Jesus, who is our life. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Is that where your hope is? In Jesus Christ, who is the resurrection and the life. Not in the passing glory of this world but in the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen. Please stand with me in prayer. Our Father in heaven, glory be to thy most holy name. Thank thee for instructing us and teaching us of the passing glory of this life just as the empires of old have passed away. They don't, do not exist anymore. We read about them in history, but they're gone. So likewise will our life be. But our life, Lord, uh, has a, a brighter future than in any glory here upon the earth. Though we, Father, while here upon the earth, we want to serve thee, we want to be faithful, we want to be courageous, but we realize Lord, there is so much more awaiting us in that heavenly glory with Jesus Christ. I hath not seen nor ear heard, nor can we even imagine the beauty, the perfection, the glory of that which the Lord has prepared for us. So Lord, we pray that our lives we be built upon Jesus and that Lord, uh, any within the sound of my voice. Any who would say, I don't know that my life is built upon Jesus Christ, or I know it is not built upon Jesus Christ, that they would now turn in faith to Christ, that they would turn to trust in him, the one who alone can rescue and save them from their sin because he died for sin upon the cross. The one who was raised from the dead who has shown himself to be the Son of God by his resurrection and that he has shown himself as well to uh, have secured the forgiveness of all through his resurrection. Otherwise, he would have remained in that grave. But his sacrifice was accepted by the Father and therefore he was raised from the dead. We pray, Father, work in the lives of all who hear uh, even now, from the youngest to the oldest. We thank thee, our God, for thy faithfulness to us in spite of our unfaithfulness. Thank thee, our God, 
that thou hast shown to us where our pride leads. Lord, uh, may we humble ourselves that we not have to be humbled by thee. We ask, Lord, hear our prayers. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat>